You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Why don't you tell someone beside you or across from you the title of my sermon this morning, Our Manners, Our Manners. Ask them, where are your manners this morning? Not, not in a rude way, just then, you know. Last week, we began our vision casting series called Ambassadors, where we're, we are taking a look at what it means to be an ambassador of Christ, as we just read from our passage. This is a vision casting series, something that we often do here at Plus Life, once in a while at least, to refresh and renew in our hearts and our minds the vision and mission of our church, to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, our our mission being to reach others with the, the gospel of Christ and to cultivate lives that revolve around Christ and, of course, reflect the love of Christ to our communities around us. The purpose of that, and now the purpose of this series in particular, is to give us practical ways on how to live out that vision and mission of our church. Last week, we discussed our message. Today, today it's our manners. Last week, it was our message, and that lines up with our mission statement of reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This week, we'll be talking about our manners, as you could probably have taken from our title ambassadors back in the day and even today needed to be very watchful, very vigilant of their manners, their conduct, their their way of behaving in different and foreign countries because the way that they lived represented the king that they stood for, they were being ambassadors for. Similarly, as as we began talking about last week, we too as ambassadors of Christ must be watchful of the way we conduct ourselves, the way that we behave and present ourselves to the world. We must protect, as we mentioned last week, we must protect our witness, our testimony to the world. But as we also talked about, it's not all about the externals. It's not about how we look or dress or how we appear to outsiders. That's a component to it, but that's not the main part. It's not, it doesn't, our manners deal more with our perspective, our heart, our reason, our motivation of why we do things. You know, my son Judah, he's three years old now, and, you know, he, he sort of has a mind of his own. And so we're, we've been trying to teach him how to do some good things, right, to, to behave properly and whatnot. We always often have, I always have to tell him, okay, Judah, don't tackle your sister Olivia, right? She's smaller than you. And, and, but I've, what I've noticed, and maybe you parents know as well, it's not just a matter of giving rules to kids. You also have to give them reason as to why those rules are necessary, right? You have to give them a motivation as to why they need to follow those rules. Judah, you can't tackle your sister because we don't have the insurance to cover her, her injuries if, if, if she gets hurt. That's not really the reason. But because you love her, right, and because you care for your sister, all of that stuff, and so we find, and the same thing with us, you, it's not just a matter of teaching manners to you this morning, but also motive. Why do we conduct ourselves a certain way? Where this comes full circle, of course, is where it lines up with our mission statement of revolving or cultivating lives that revolve around Christ, having a Christ-centered worldview, because that Christ-centered worldview manifests itself into a behavior, into a conduct, into a specific way of living in this world, hence the word manners. 
Now, in order to get a, a sort of a center on this or a focus or a proper motive, so to speak, on, on, on how to live with a Christ-centered worldview or, or to have proper manners, we're going back to our passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the same passage we looked at last week, and we're going to be focusing on a very specific part of it, verse 12 to 17. If you recall from last week, we looked at the therefore statements in this passage, or the, the highlight statements that Paul had uh, in, in, his, in this passage that we have this morning. But as we'll see, in between those, those highlight statements, those therefore statements, Paul discusses his motive. He discusses his reason as to why he conducts, why he behaves himself a specific way. And again, as we have just read, and as we'll go through again, it's not about the externals. Not about the externals. In fact, he even calls out those who live for the externals alone. And my hope for us this morning is not just to remind you of how to behave and how, and how to behave properly and how to have good manners in the world, but more so to, to give you a right perspective, to, to reorient your heart to a right motive and a reason as to why you ought to be living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your day-to-day, -day, in your workplaces, in your school. How to keep Christ at the center of all of that, all the decision-makings that you, you do, all the, all, the, all the endeavors that you pursue in this life, how to keep Christ at the center. So with that said, we're going to jump into our passage. I don't want to take up too much of your time, as I always often do nowadays. Uh, uh, but let's jump into our passage, as we always do in our church. We all say, jump together as we jump into Scripture. Everyone say, jump for me. Amen. If you have your Bibles, look at this passage with me again. We encourage people to bring your Bibles to the church so that you can follow along and you can see Scripture for yourself and, and, and really unpack this text uh, with us. So back to our passage, verse 11. Right? Let's unpack this with us. It says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Then he goes on in verse 12, and we talked about this last week, that this is building from verse 10, where, where Paul just talked about the final judgment and how the wrath of God is going to come. And this is part of his motivation is why he shares the gospel. We, knowing the fear of the Lord, he goes and shares the gospel. He goes and persuades persuades others. Then verse 12, he says, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Now, this, is, this gives us a great context about where Paul is coming at and why, why he's addressing these certain issues uh, in, uh, to this Corinthian church. He, he's giving a very... He, he, before, this, is, this is coming right before he gives his motive, his reason as to why he conducts himself in a certain way. And that's because, if you recall, this is, well, you just look at your Bible, this is the second letter to the Corinthian church that Paul writes. In the first letter of the, of Paul, uh, that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he corrects them a lot because the Corinthian church was doing a lot of bad things. At the same time, there was people in the Corinthian church who were who was talking bad about Paul. They were saying, hey, you know what? Paul's not that great. We follow Apollos instead. No, well, we don't follow Paul or Apollos. We follow Cephas instead. So there's a lot of bickering and arguments happening in the Corinthian church. And so Paul, what he's talking about in verse 12, specifically starting in verse 12, is that I'm not trying to brag. I'm not trying to, to uh, give you reason to believe me again. I'm just giving you reason to boast instead. Why you should be praising God instead. And, instead. and what he goes on to say is that so that you have reason to say to those who are, 
who are boasting about externals, who are, who are all about their, their, their works and their external presentation of themselves, that you have a reason to argue against them. And of course, he points out that the externals, it's not about the externals. It's about the heart. It's about the heart. He says very clearly, right? Notice that it's not about the, the appearance of an individual that he's concerned about. It's the motive. It's the conduct. There's these Corinthian leaders who are, who are professing to be these great super apostles and saying that they're much better than Paul because they got these gifts and they're doing all these wondrous things. But Paul says, look at their heart. Look at their heart. And so now starting from verse 13, he starts giving more reason as to his motivation. He says, he says let's look at, look at verse 13 with me. For if we are besides ourselves... It is for God. The, the, in, in the original Greek, or that phrase, besides ourselves, often denoted insanity. Insanity. But in the context of what, what Paul is talking about here and how he was, in the first le- his first letter, he was very dogmatic about the truth and correcting everyone. He's saying, right, he, he, was defending that, he was defending himself and saying, if it seemed that we were dogmatic, we're doing this for God because of our commitment to the truth. Then after that, he says, if we are in our right mind, meaning sober-minded, thinking straight, that meaning that there's something governing us, he says, it is for you. The reason why we are, we are conducting ourselves this way, we are thinking ourselves, thinking and, and behaving in a certain way, is for your benefit. It's for your upbuilding. And so he goes on to say, after this, his reasoning, What? because the word... Uh, the word that he uses here in that passage where in our right mind, it denotes a sense of having something that governs your actions, having something sober-minded, meaning you have something that governs your thoughts and your motives. And after that, Paul goes on to give exactly what those motives are, what controls and what captures his thoughts and what leads him in, his, in the, the specific conduct that he undertakes. In verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, the one has died for all, therefore all have died. The first thing that ought to govern his mind or what governs Paul's mind and what ought to govern our own conduct and our own behaviors in this world is, uh, is this idea of, of Christ's love. And what, how that exemplifies and how that, that works out in terms of what Paul's talking about here is in gratitude. The thing that co- governs Paul's life and what decides his conduct is gratitude. And the same thing for us, our lives should be governed with gratitude as well. He says in our passage, the love of Christ controls us. Now in the past, I, I posed this question before. Is it Christ's love that controls Paul, or is it his love for Christ that controls him? Because you can read the, that passage very differently, right? Is it, the Christ, is it Christ's love that controls and compels Paul, or is it his love for Christ that motivates him to do things? Let me take a, a quick survey, all right? Who thinks it's the love of Christ that controls Paul? Put your hand up. Okay, okay. Who thinks it's Paul's love for Christ that controls him, his, that motivates him? Okay, all right, we're kind of split. Some people are indifferent, not listening, probably sleeping. It's okay, it's fine. Um, I'm used to it, you know. Uh, here's, here's the reality, right? And, and this is what we learn from Scripture. 
Our hearts are fickle, right? You know, as, the, as the, that, that great hymn says, right, our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. Our hearts are fickle. We are in the flesh. And oftentimes, the things that we pursue, the things that we love in this life is not always aligned with God. And our love for God sometimes wavers, especially in trials when we've experienced difficulty. Our love for God is like, well, you know, I have my off days, right? So the reality of what Paul is saying here is that it's not his love that motivates him because he understands that he is weak, that he is, he is human. In the, in, in the same book, in the same uh, letter that he writes, how he, is, he, he, he needs Christ's strength in his times of weakness, what motivates him, what controls him, is what doesn't waver, is what is, what is constantly faithful. It is the love of Christ for him. The unchanging, unwavering, that is the, the love of Christ is what motivates and, and pushes Paul to, to behave and to go preach the gospel as we read, as we read from the rest of this passage. And how, and how that, 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 that love of that the Christ, the, the love of Christ in Paul's life is manifested is through gratitude. It, it comes out in gratitude. And we see this in, in this letter, but also all throughout. Paul's other letters. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 to 14, he says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul's recalling his own testimony, how God saved him when he was persecuting the church. But he says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The thing that, 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 that sort of shapes Paul's worldview and governs his actions is the fact that he has encountered for himself the love of Christ. See, gratitude demonstrates an understanding of grace. Gratitude demonstrates that you have truly reconciled in your heart and in your mind that, listen, you are a sinner undeserving of anything from God. That you are a sinner undeserving of even the breath in your lungs this morning. But because of God's grace, because of his faithfulness and his love for you, he gives you what you have not earned. He has given you what you have not deserved. And that's what Paul is trying to encapsulate here in, in his point, in that, that the love of Christ is, is controlling me. I, I did not deserve the love of Christ. I did not deserve the grace and mercy of Christ. But yet, here I am, being used by him. Gratitude demonstrates an understanding of grace. That's, that's his reasoning behind his actions. And, and in fact, he even says this in our passage, right? He goes on to say, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. This is our reasoning. This is our thought process. Here's our, our work, right? Here's his reasoning. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. Not just, this is not just a statement of fact, by the way, or a, a, some sort of theological proposition of atonement or propitiation of sin. This, this is his reasoning, why it's so necessary and why it's convicting him. And remember, this passage is in the context of verse 10, where he talks about the judgment of God against sinners. 
where he talks about the fear of the Lord in verse 11. And so his conclusion is that we no longer have to experience that judgment of God, that wrath of God, because Christ died for us, therefore we have all died to sin in him. There's a tone of rejoicing in that, isn't there? There's a tone, a tone of, of, of celebration in Paul there. We have concluded this, that one has, the, one has died for all, therefore all have died. And we see this reflected in other passages as well. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says a similar thing here. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a sense of gratitude that Paul is trying to communicate. His life was marked with it. For, the, for he himself had experienced the riches of the Savior's grace and the, and the riches of the Savior's love poured out on him when he was a persecutor of the church. He recognized that everything in his life was from God's good graces. It was unmerited, undeserved, and he lived a life of gratitude. Now, in the same, in the same way, our lives, for us who are also called to be ambassadors of Christ, our lives should be governed by gratitude as well. Ask yourself, does your life exclaim gratitude towards God? Would others who, who see your life, would it, would, it, would, ex, would it exclaim the riches of God's grace that you have experienced yourself? And of course, similar to Paul, it's not just our salvation, though that is the pinnacle of God's grace in our life, but everything else that we have in this world, in this life. Would your life exclaim gratitude? Here's an easy test for you, right? If, if you want to see if you're a grateful person, right? How much do you grumble? How much do you grumble? I know that I'm asking you the question. Don't look at your spouse right now. I'm asking you, how much do you grumble? This is why I'm not looking at my wife, you know, making eye contact. Just so In any given day, how much do you complain before you, before you give praise, before you give thanks? Listen, the extent in which you are grateful is only limited by the amount in which you grumble. The more you practice gratitude, the less you grumble. The more you, you grumble, the more ungrateful you truly appear and you actually become. A good example of that is the Israelites in the wilderness. Right Here was God who saved the, the, the Hebrew people from slavery, displayed wonders in Egypt, had the Red Sea split on their behalf so they could walk across, gave them food and drink in the wilderness, even gave them tablets of stone specifically to give them his commands. And what did they do all throughout the wilderness? They grumbled and grumbled and grumbled, despite all the grace, all the, all the things that God showed them in the wilderness. We've been given the greatest gift, salvation. But God also pours out so much things in our lives that we don't deserve. Are you grateful for it? And does that reflect in your life? Do people see that gratitude in your life? Our, our manners, our conduct, our behavior should be governed by gratitude. Secondly, let's go to verse 15. It says, continuing that thought, he says, and he died for all, 
He's giving the reason now as to why Christ died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul was contrasting, again, his opponents, those who were trying to live for externals, the outward appearance. He was contrasting how, how these people, these individuals at this church were, were living for themselves so that they would get all the glory and people would praise them and people would get, give all their attention to them. What he's saying here is that, no, Christ died for us so that we're not living for ourselves anymore. And then he goes on to contrast, in fact, our old self as well. Because as we know, in the flesh, prior to Christ, we only lived for ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2, I love this passage, you could preach from this forever. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before Christ, Paul is very clear that we are just like the rest of the world, falling after our own passions, falling after our own flesh. But after Christ died, he made it so that we no longer have to live for ourselves. Listen, this is a paradigm shift in the world. Because understand, if you think about it right now, how many people are out there living for themselves? For their ambitions, for their desires, their identity, their dreams, their flesh. Everyone is. Everyone. Yet Christ made it so that we no longer have to live for ourselves that we can live for him. As ambassadors of Christ, that's what we live for. The one who died for us. The king who died for us. No longer for ourselves. We are called to live sacrificially for Christ. Like Christ, in the same way that he lived for us. He, he died and then lived sacrificially for us. And I think a practical way of how that manifests itself is in generosity. Generosity. Our manners, our conduct, our behavior ought to be governed by generosity. Generosity. When we think of this word, we often associate it immediately to wealth or giving financially. And although that is true as well, that's not the full picture of it. When Scripture defines generosity, it's more so defined in the giving of oneself giving up one's comforts, giving up one's preferences, one's rights, even our own time in order to benefit or to serve another person or to help another individual. Look at Matthew chapter 5 with me, the, the, the great sermon on the mount from Jesus. He says in verse 38, when, in the context of, of getting retribution and seeking vengeance on, on someone who has harmed you, he says in verse 38, you have heard it's... You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone who slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And in verse 40 he says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one 
who would borrow from you. Jesus, the underlying theme that Jesus is talking about here is generosity. The underlying theme is sacrifice, of laying down your own comfort, even your own pride, and even your own rights, and giving back even to your enemies with a generous heart. Generosity is, is, is selflessness manifested. Generosity is what kills selfishness. It's, it's giving above and beyond, and not just from your abundance, but sometimes even from your poverty. Generosity is what we're called to give and do. And Jesus, of course, is the greatest example of that. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 38, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then Paul gives us our example for this, this kind of lifestyle, this kind of behavior. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus set aside his glory, his kingdom, to come to earth and lavish us with his grace, lavish us with his love. That's how generosity looks like. And again, remember, we were enemies of God. He did that to a people that, that hated him. Generosity costs us something, just as it costs Christ. So as in, in application, are you a generous person? Are you a generous person? And not in, in, not in a worldly sense, because I think there's, some, there's a, a, a worldly application of generosity, right? Similar to how maybe politicians or, or sort of these people who are out there get, get, trying to get publicity for themselves. And look at me, you know, I'm giving money to the poor. Or look at me, I'm helping this individual. No, not like that. In fact, Christ even scolds people who do that. He scolds the Pharisees who, who brag about giving or who, who, who go out in the streets and with a trumpet and declare how they're helping people. Jesus says, no, no, don't do that. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He says in Matthew. So it's not about bragging rights or, or clout chasing or whatever it is these kids use these days, right? It's, it defeats the purpose of being selfless. Generosity has to be selfless. And again, as we talked about, it's not just material. It's not just in, in wealth. It's, you can be generous in your time, in your patience towards one another, in giving and showing grace to one another. Are you a generous person? How about this? Are you generous in your words? In your words. You know, I think when it comes to criticizing or criticism, I think we can be very generous, Right? You can say a, a whole list of things to, to negative about an individual, but how much encouragement or affirmation do you, do you give about others? How much prayers do you lift up on, the, on behalf of other people? Are you generous in those things? As ambassadors of Christ, our manners, our conduct must be displayed through generosity, or it must be governed by generosity in the same sacrificial way that Christ 
gave, a selfless way that Christ demonstrated on the cross. Again, we no longer live for ourselves. We live for the king who died for us. All right, so before we get to the last point, let's do a little test, make sure everyone's still awake this morning. First and foremost, how, how should our lives be governed? It should be governed by gratitude. And secondly, amen. Good. Okay, good. This is the title. Get a, thank you. We're, we're working together. Amen. By the way, if you want to kill sin in your life, practice these things. Gratitude and generosity. If you're struggling with sin or some sort of... Um, some sort of, of struggle with, with temptation in your life, practice these two things, gratitude and generosity. Gratitude keeps you from lusting after what you don't have, right? Gratitude keeps you from desiring after what's not yours even, or it's not in your season. You're thanking God, God, regardless, right? I'm, I'm thankful for what you've given me. And generosity, on the other hand, keeps you from elevating your own desires, your own flesh, your own wants, and, and your needs over the needs and, and desires of God or other people. Gratitude and generosity, practice those things if you are struggling with sin in your life. So let's move on to verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though once we regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul is calling out again to those people who are boasting about outward appearance, these people who are boasting about the flesh. But now Paul is saying here that we're, we're, our regard, our esteem, our, our, our praise is not according to what people do now, according to the flesh. It's not about the externals. That's not what we value here. No, he says, he says, that's not what merits praise. He goes on to say, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. He's saying here, though the things that Christ accomplished in the flesh were great, the miracles that he performed in the flesh was phenomenal. That's not what we value anymore. It's the spiritual, what Christ accomplished on the cross. Remember, he's talking about the one who died so that all, must, so that all have died. And so that we can now live for him. He's talking in a spiritual sense here. He's saying we're no longer praising Christ for the things he accomplished in the flesh here in his earthly ministry. We're praising him for the spiritual accomplishments, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the grave. So that now we can live for him and be free of sin. That's what he regards highly. That's what is, he's giving praise to. This is what gives reason to verse 17 of our passage, right? He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul is celebrating not what Christ accomplished in his life, but what he has accomplished in his death. Regeneration, new life, being born again, being created into a new creation, salvation. You can tell where Paul's eyes were set on, right? It's not in the, the physical, it's not in the material, it's not in, in, in the fleshly works of Christ or even those who were boasting in the Corinthian church. He was talking about the spiritual. His eyes were on the spiritual. And so in the same way, our manners and our conduct must be governed by godliness. It must be governed by godliness. Now like generosity, this word godliness gets often a, a bad rap, right? 
Often it's equated with outward appearance. Oh, look at elder so-and-so. He's so godly. It's like he floats into the room, right? That's not, that's not what godliness, uh, godliness is according to Scripture. In fact, again, remember, Paul is really hammering the point that it's not about the externals or how you behave, although that often, uh, oftentimes that does bear fruit in externals. Godliness does bear fruit in externals. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the heart. Godliness has to do more about the posture of the heart than the practice of your hands. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 to 8, he says to the young pastor Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, that's the external that's the externals, that's the outward appearance, right? Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So even from that, Paul is, or, Paul is already saying that it's not about the externals, about how your outer appearance, it's about, it's about the spiritual aspect, the, 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 your, your spiritual self and how, you, and how you live according to that. In fact, in the original Greek, the, the word for godliness is eusebia, it translates to devotion or even reverence towards God. Having your life be governed by a devotion and reverence towards God, that's godliness. Again, connecting it back to our passage here in 2 Corinthians, you can only achieve this kind of devotion and reverence for God when you have your mind and have your eyes focused on spiritual things and not physical things. Having a Christ-centered worldview that filters in everything that we experience in this world and the things that happen in the flesh, the things that we have in the, in, in, that's materially, processing it through and via a mind that is governed by Christ. Paul is getting at perspective here. He says again, from now on, therefore, we, re- we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. It's having a spiritual perspective. Later, Paul says in, this, in, this, in the same book, he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He's talking about a lens, a filter in how to process and how to receive information and, and what happens in our lives. It's having the mind of Christ. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are fully to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person, someone who's walking in the flesh, someone who's even still in their sin, yet he goes on to say the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Those who are in Christ have the mind of Christ. And again, he calls, out, he calls us to, to judge all things, to filter, to perceive the world through spiritual lenses. That's real godliness. It, manifests, it, it will manifest itself, of course, in behavior, in, in how we act, in how we make decisions. There's no doubt about that in the externals but it starts internally. The trajectory of the believer is always spiritual. 
It's not in this life. Our home, our citizenship is not in this world. It is in heaven. And therefore, our minds ought to be heaven-bound as well. Our minds should be filtered through heaven's eyes as well. As ambassadors of Christ, our manners should be governed by godliness, heaven-focused, kingdom-minded, spiritual lenses to navigate this world. And so, in application again, how do you view the world? How do you view the circumstances of your life, the, the things that occur, trials even in your life? Is it with spiritual lenses? Is it with a mind of Christ trying to understand the will of God in these, in these situations? And, and again, it's, it's, this idea of godliness, is, is, it's not to be holier than thou or to sort of be better than other people. It's just simply thinking and processing through every aspect and every situation in your life with a godly perspective. This Is this decision that I'm going to make going to glorify God? Where is God's will in my choice pursuing this endeavor? How can I glorify God the best, the most in this life, in my workplace, in, in my school? That's godliness. So our manners, they should be governed by gratitude. Acknowledging and being grateful for the fact that all that we have in this life, including our salvation, is from a gracious God. We deserve nothing, yet God has lavishly poured out His grace and love upon us. In the same sense, our manners should be governed by generosity. Being selfless manifests itself in generosity and giving above and beyond what we have, not just from our abundance, but sometimes in our poverty. And our manners, our actions, should be governed by godliness, by aligning ourselves with the mind of Christ, aligning ourselves with the will and purposes of God, and pursuing things in this life in those terms, in that light. We must, we must practice these ways or these things and be governed in these aspects if we desire to have a life that revolves around Christ. A, a life that revolves around Christ is a life that lives in gratitude towards Him, that lives selflessly for Him and demonstrates a devotion to have Christ involved in every aspect of our lives. The world needs to see a difference in us if we are to be ambassadors. The world needs to see Christ through us as we represent him in this world. And the only way to truly do that is, as Paul said in our passage, the love of Christ must control us. And as, as we enter into this time of reflection and invitation, that's an invitation for all of us who, for all of us, really, Ask yourself, does the love of Christ control you? Is your life governed by gratitude for what the Savior has done for your life? Are you selflessly giving yourself to the service of God and to the service of others? Not elevating yourself, not putting yourself first. And is your mind, the things that you are pursuing, the way you perceive this world, governed 
by Christ. It all starts with understanding the love of Christ for you. And if you have yet to reconcile that with you, as our passage says, we implore you, we plead with you, be reconciled to God. God made a way so that you can be in right relationship with him, so that you can experience his love. And that only happens through Jesus Christ, one who died to the one who died for our sins so that we can live for him. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word that comes forth with conviction is a light in the darkness to reveal to us, oh God, wherever we have strayed, wherever we need to grow. And I pray for our hearts this, this morning, oh God. Lord, if there's hearts here who, who have not been living for you, individuals in the room, oh God, who have who have not been living up to this call to be an ambassador of you through our thoughts, through our actions, and how we represent you to the world. I pray, Father God, for mercy. I pray for grace, O oh Lord, over our lives. Help us be more grateful, Lord. Help us not grumble but to see, oh God, the, the many ways that you've poured out your grace over our lives. Help us be more generous, oh Lord, in the things that you have entrusted to us, in our time, in our talents, in our treasure, so that we no longer live for ourselves in pursuit of the things that, that we want, our preferences, our rights, but Lord God, that we would pursue living for you, truly living for you. Lord God, I pray that you'd help us be a godly people. Not thinking, not talking, not acting with corrupt motives, oh Lord, but to have you at the center of every decision, and every desire, and every motive. Help us, oh God, truly live for you. I pray, Father, that you convict the heart that needs to reconcile with you this morning. But those who have yet to put their faith in you, truly put their faith in you, truly experience your love and your grace, I pray, God, that this day would be the day of salvation. I pray, Father God, that this day you would truly transform their hearts and draw them towards you, O oh God, to a right, reconciled relationship. God, we thank you that you are faithful. You are faithful to your word. You are faithful to your people. And though we fall short, your love remains the same. And I pray, Father God, that as Paul declares, Lord, in our passage this morning, that your love would control us as well. 
your love that is unfailing, unfading. Remain and abide in us and allow it to be our motivation to come back to you, to run to you, to live for you in this life. God, we give you the glory. Thank you for what you are doing. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.